So good evening, everyone. And welcome to Gongchen Lamrim, Venerable Children's Traveling. I'm not sure where she is right now. Netherlands. Netherlands. So um, we'll do some reviewing of the Gongchen Lamrim. And last time we were reviewing the um, six perfections. And we're going to continue with that tonight. We're, we've had one talk on meditative stabilization. We'll continue with that. But first, we'll take a moment to set our motivation for this hour or so. So one time I was asking venerable children why or when really do the galupas, because they study so much, when do they ever decide to work on calm abiding? And she said it's good, she thought, it's good to at least have the correct view. And in um, preparing for this, I came across something from Lama Sankapa who said you should really make the your bodhicitta stable before you do that. And so let's take a moment to think about the six perfections that we're studying and how they are completely... Um, the basis for them is compassion and how important that is for us to slowly, slowly, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, attune our minds to this kind of response to our lives and to hold this as so dear and then to expand it to a place where we really can take in concern for all beings everywhere. Their suffering, their wish to be happy. And then have this thought to benefit them and to become enlightened in order to do that. And slowly, slowly our minds will change as we create this new pathway in our thinking, in our heart, as we subdue all the obstacles in the way of really this beautiful and most noble human value, and I've even seen it in our cats. So let's take a moment in your own way to generate this vast aspiration for this time together. So when we talk about the six perfections and when we think about meditate, the perfection of uh, far-reaching meditative stability, the main topic there is actually serenity or calm abiding. Sanskrit for that is shamatha and the Tibetan for that is, is shine. And in shine, that's two syllables in Tibetan. The shi means calm. It has the idea of quieting distractions. And the ne means abide. So it has the idea of your mind being stable on the object. So we want to have a mind that's calm, stable. And shamatha, if you know, one way to describe it is a form of meditation that creates a very stable mind that is capable of focusing single-pointedly on emptiness or any other phenomena. 
It's also what they call access to the first meditative stabilization or the first jhana, which we'll talk about in a bit. But before we get so detailed, let's think about it more generally, this mind of serenity that can be stable on the object and yet be really vibrantly alert and have mental clarity. So that's really what we're talking about here. And sometimes we hear the word samadhi, which means concentration, and that's um, a word that's used in a lot of different contexts in different ways. So Venable said that you have to really figure out in the situation exactly what it is, but um, it is a continuous single-pointed focus on a designated object, and it's a very powerful state of mind. With, with samadhi, you can control your mental activity and the arising of afflictions. But that word isn't the same as shamatha. It's not, a, you know, there are words that you hear a lot together, but it is a different word. It has different meanings in different contexts. But shamatha is very easily, is very well defined. In when we think about stabilizing meditation, we have, we talk about two kinds of meditation in general, analytical or checking meditation and stabilizing meditation. Stabilizing is when you're focusing and absorbing the mind in one object without it wavering. Whereas in analytical meditation, we're more kind of, I wouldn't say pondering. <laughs> That's a little, maybe it starts that way, <laughs> but it, it gets to a much more subtle level, but you're, you're really probing to understand something or so the point I'm trying to make here is that when we talk about stabilizing meditation, the mind is focused and absorbed on one object. So a lot of times people will say, oh my, I'm concentrating, I'm running, and that helps me concentrate, or painting, or, you know, whatever it is, playing a computer game. Like I'm, I'm single-pointed on it, you know. And the, prob- the problem with that in the way we're defining this is those objects are changing all the time. When you're running, you're moving, moving, moving. When you're playing a computer game, you might be very concentrated, but it's moving, moving, or like playing music or whatever. So you're having to think about and attend to a lot of different things to do that task. And even in um, something that you might think of more as meditation, like breathing meditation, Bhikkhu Bodhi has explained, at least from the point of view of, uh, I would say, the Theravada tradition, that even the rising and falling of the abdomen is too much to be used. It, it helps you to get some concentration, but it's not one for single point in concentration. That's used more for insight. It's, it's, in the beginning, it's good to use, and it will help a person to increase their concentration. But when you actually want single point in concentration, they're quite clear in some of the traditions there that you they'll use the nostrils because the rising and falling of the is too much change, whereas the nostrils, the breath, that that sensation is in one place, and so Goenka uses the rising and falling of the belly a lot, but it's actually doing insight meditation. In fact, the four establishments of mindfulness are actually more considered insight meditations. So anyway, that's what it is. Your object can't be fluctuating is the point I'm trying to make. So, so 
yeah, we use a certain level of concentration in our day-to-day life, and by increasing our concentration in meditation, it can help us in our day-to-day life. My nephew once uh, taught himself how to meditate online when he was like 12, and he said, wow, I can do my homework faster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was, you know, he just taught himself whatever he taught himself, and he noticed a change in his ability to concentrate. So concentration and serenity are very important. They help us with what you might call mundane attainments. Those include things even like the super knowledges. But there also are things that are more like super mundane or transcendental attainments, like liberation and enlightenment. We need to have concentration and serenity to do that. And Atisha, there's a couple of verses we'll share tonight by him. One, he says, in order to develop the super knowledges and the beyond samsara paths, in order to free yourself from samsara, you should first cultivate serenity. If your serenity practice is weak, you will gain no power, even through sustained efforts. Therefore, accomplish the trainings in the various levels of samadhi. And the point that I want to focus on from what he's saying here, although he mentions the super knowledges, and we'll talk about that later, it's something Venerable has taught many times and um, but the point I want to focus on is first cultivate serenity. This, this comes up again and again in uh, the various texts that we read. Shantideva also says this, that emphasizing serenity is accomplished prior to insight. He says, recognizing that the afflictions are eradicated by insight imbued with serenity, one should first seek serenity that is achieved with detachment towards the world and with joy, and with joy. So that doesn't mean that we, as you go back to what Lamas and Kappa said, it doesn't mean the first thing we do when we start to meditate is learn about serenity. That's not what they're saying here at all. What Lamas and Kappa said is make your bodhicitta firm first. And, we, and they always teach us um, that we need to, yes, serenity comes before insight, but you wouldn't know what to meditate on unless you studied first. My Tibetan teacher just laughed at me when I told him we were going to do a retreat. He said, what are you going to, what are you going to meditate on? You don't know anything. You know, it's kind of basically what he was saying. The sakyas are like that, just like the galupas, you know. You need to do something while you're there, so you, you need to have some background. So, yeah, so... Yes, serenity is needed before insight because you need serenity to actually fully develop insight. But before that, before you're even going to turn your mind to serenity, you need to have your bodhicitta firm. And before you get that, you're going to have to have kind of the general Buddhist path, understanding there's just a lot of things to learn first. So we have a, you know, like where we are right now in the six perfections, we're in the Lam Rim, right? It starts with the three scopes. So of the three scopes, we're in the third scope right now, and we're in the the fifth of the sixth perfection, so we're pretty far along, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot that comes first, a lot of background you should have, and people like I meet in the prison who just don't know much about meditation sometimes, there's a lot of people in the Wicca group that like to meditate, and sometimes they come to the Buddhist group, and they get themselves in some trouble because they don't have enough background. And so we're, it's really, uh, you can get your, it's, it's like learning to drive. You should have some instruction. You know, your mind is uh, something you need to be careful with. Just to pick up and start meditating isn't 
you know, you, you want instruction. So, but I want to focus now on the other part of this verse where Shanti Deva says it's achieved with detachment towards the world and with joy. So serenity is a type of concentration, but it's supported by the bliss of pliancy. It's able to keep the mind in equipoise as we, on an object as we wish. But this uh, pliancy is associated with joy and, um, and attachment towards the world. And so we'll flesh those out just a little. Um, pliancy is a kind of serviceability is the way we say it. But it's funny that when Jin Lam Rinpa talks about this, he actually separates this and has different Tibetan words for both pliancy and serviceability. Sometimes we've used them interchangeably. So I thought I'd just share what he says about these. Pliancy has physical and mental aspects. There's a physical pliancy and a mental pliancy. Physical pliancy is a sensation you feel in your body. It's very pleasurable, tactile sensation. And it's associated with the movement of the subtle energies or the prana within the body. Whereas mental pliancy is actually a mental event. And it renders the body and the mind he would say, fit for action, that's what he said, and serviceable. And then he goes on to define serviceability, which has a, has a different word in Tibetan, as a buoyancy of the body and mind, a state in which the mind is easily aroused to engage in wholesome activity. This is what I love about the study of pliancy. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be just through having concentration to have a body and mind that can easily engage in virtue. This is totally what interests me in concentration. It's been a real motivating force for a long time. So that's pretty awesome. So what is what marks the attainment, or what is the attainment of shamatha? As we were saying, it's the it's also called the access to the first jhana or the first meditative stabilization, which I believe is something, right? Meditative stabilization? I think so. Is that right, Tibetan people? Okay. Well, I'm thinking it is, but I'm not positive. So the first jhana, jhana is the Pali, and dhyana is the Sanskrit, I believe. These, this is a different dimension of existence. It's actually the form realm. It's, so what you're, when you reach the point of shamatha, you have pliancy, and you actually are in this access concentration, which is like, what does that mean? What is access concentration? It's a state of concentration that immediately proceeds and provides access to this actual first jhana. That's how it gets the name access. And so thinking again about detachment, as I mentioned last time I taught in this review, we were talking about the six conditions that you need in order to, you know, the conditions you need to develop serenity. And in that talk, I wanted to repeat this part that to attain jhana, you have to turn away from sensual desires. You're leaving the desire realm. So, you know, like, think about it. You, you have to let desire go. You know, you've got to turn away from sensual desires. So if you have a motivation that involves attachment, this is Jin Lam Rinpa's point, which I really makes sense to me. If you have a motiva- motivation that involves attachment to the sensory world, to the desire realm, that's going to become your obstacle in terms of gaining the attainment you want of, of calm abiding or, or serenity. 
I think it's important to think about that because when we think about creating the conditions now to attain this in the future, this is something we can work on every day. Make our minds satisfied, be content with what we have, work with our attachments. And by doing that, we'll help our concentration down the line because we're creating the kind of milieu you need within the mind and your life to do that and your motivation. So Venable kind of pulls this whole thing and says, our teachers tell us first to develop the Buddhist worldview. We need to understand the three principal aspects of the path before we work on serenity. And the reason she says this is because a lot of the path, she says, has to do with character development. We have to become an ethical person with kind motivations who can cherish others more than ourselves. That's kind of the ground that we need to be working on in order to get to the place where we would even be working on on this kind of meditation. This will help us to develop our mental strength. We'll know what to adopt and what to abandon. And as you know, they always say in the three higher trainings, it's ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. You're going to just be sitting there distracted by your poor ethical conduct or you know how, how, how you're behaving during the day you'll never be able to concentrate so we need to have first the Buddhist worldview we need to learn how to um, apply and, and delve into the three principal aspects of the path so that we have the correct view we know what we're doing anyone can develop serenity you don't have to be a Buddhist even the super knowledges those aren't necessarily Buddhist. Those are related to concentration. A non-Buddhist could also accomplish those. So then there are considered, uh, I think, I'm not sure, my my sources for this evening are um, primarily Lama Tsongkhapa, Venerable Children's Teachings in the Gongshan Lamrim, Jin Lamrimpa. And I have a few things on the meditation objects from uh, Geshe Sopa, and Jeffrey Hopkins walking through walls. But I'm not sure where this was from, but I thought it was nice to know that what are the essential topics for understanding serenity? These are kind of like big outline things in our outline from the Gongchen Lam Rim. The first one we went through last time I spoke were the conducive conditions for the practice of serenity. Those were the six kind of conditions that you needed. And then the next one is cushion and posture which I've been putting at the very end of the talk because we've gone over those so many times that if I run out of time, that's what's getting cut. (laughs) And then the next one are the focal objects or the objects of meditation, which is what we'll lead into and do tonight. And um, the topics that lead up to that in our outline in the Gongchen Lamrim and that topic. And then the next thing, which we aren't going through tonight, but will be coming up, will be the five faults and the eight antidotes. And those are also things that you need to know for both sutra or tantra path for for serenity. And the nine stages of sustained attention, the way that we progress to serenity. So those five topics, you you need to know something about those to get on track. Although there's a lot more said. Okay, so in our outline from Gomsen Lam Rim, we're just kind of... We've, got, we've done, the topic is how to train in meditative serenity. We've gone through the, the requisites, the six requisites last time I spoke, which is, I don't know, in December maybe. And now we're kind of moving forward on the basis of having those conditions. 
what do you do next? It's the preparatory phase. And we talked a little bit about that last time I spoke about the motivation for doing uh, shamatha. But there also are other topics in our, our it's kind of a one-liner in the Gom Chen Lam Ram. It just says, meditate the preparatory topics, the spirit of enlightenment and so forth. And just a little bit I want to say about that that I think is a very salient point is, okay, what does that mean? It's like the six preparatory practices. But in general, it means make sure you take refuge, generate bodhicitta before you start a meditation session. And also it's good to offer the seven-limb prayer, to to request your spiritual mentors for inspiration so that your meditation will bear the results that you, the desired results. Our motivation is so important to our, you know, the, it's part of the causes that are going to create the results we get. So, and the thing I wanted to share from Jin Lam Rampa is that he says these general practices, and now he's actually talking about the seven limb prayer in particular, but I think you could kind of apply it to all these preliminary practices. He says these general practices act as causes for the attainment of serenity. It's important to begin to engage in them consciously from the very beginning. And they might not even seem very important to you in the beginning. But he says if you neglect them or treat them casually, even though it won't be evident to you in the beginning, it will lead you to obstacles. You might go down some tangential path, or uh, so you wouldn't really ever develop serenity because you kind of like sidetracked yourself. Or, um, yeah, and so he he has this prayer that I memorized years ago, which I use sometimes, where he says, may the unmistaken realization of shamatha swiftly arise on the stream continuum of my being. So when he does the seven-limb prayer, when he gets to the limb of request, that's the request he makes, unmistaken. So the unmistaken realization, because, you know, there's a lot of stories about thinking you've got serenity and you don't, or mistaking serenity with something else. And so, yeah, and and then you might go off track because you don't realize that actually you need guidance. So, you know, doing these prayers where we rely on our teachers and we create the merit and all that, very important. Yeah, would you repeat that for me? Yeah, may the unmistaken realization of shamatha swiftly arise and the stream continuum of my being. He just says stream of my being. I think I added continuum. I memorized it that way. And and you can also do may the unmistaken realization of bodhicitta <laughs> arise. You know, you know, just like when we make the prayer for uh, may I meet spiritual me- mentors in the future, and also may I recognize them and may I follow their advice. I found that when I first moved here in the first few years, even though I hadn't yet started getting to this stage of bumping into things with venerable children, I hadn't, you know, for some years it was just like so easy. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you start bumping heads, you know. But even before I got to that stage, I found myself, because we do purification every day, purifying in relation to the spiritual mentor. And I thought, why am I doing this? I'm not having any problems. But I think it was just like some habit, maybe, from someplace. I don't know where it came from. But I think these are the kind of things that, these are important. You know, these these things end up being very important because you can easily take a dead end. <laughs> Not so hard. 
Okay, and then the next phase in the Gongchen Labyrinth is what they call the central phase. So we got out of the preparatory phase. So that topic comes up, and then what physical posture to meditate in? And they have kind of one line for that. In the central phase, maintain the physical posture with the eight characteristics. So there's the seven seven point varachana position, and then sometimes they add an eighth, which is breathing. It's not really one of them, but it's he talks about it. And so if we get to that place, we'll talk about that. But we've gone over that many, many times in our reviews. So then moving on from there, it goes into this section on explaining the meditative process and how to generate a faultless concentration. So now the thing is, what are you supposed to do before you start focusing your mind on the object of meditation? And basically, I'll read this little section, half of it, the next, uh, the first half. To me, it seems like they're talking about what are the benefits of meditation, like you're going to talk yourself into like the advantages. Like It's like what it was Venable called that. It's like the propaganda ad or whatever. It's very nice, though. This is from the Gomchen Lamrim where it says, Possessing joy and bliss, you're physically satisfied and have the visible result that is happiness from concentration. Cool. Since pliancy has been achieved, your mind is directable to virtue, which is awesome. You don't have to fight yourself. You're just like, you can go there easily. As uncontrolled distraction towards incorrect objects, as uncontrolled distraction towards incorrect objects is appeased, Misbehavior doesn't occur. You know, you've, you, you know, your mind isn't distracted to a bunch of things that are going to get you into trouble. Your virtue is potent, and soon you will attain superknowledges and supernormal powers, which we'll talk about more later. I've never been very interested in those, but I thought I'm going to get into it this time because mm-hmm. for some reason they never... Pliancy is what interests me. The superpowers are like, well... But, you know, Atisha is like... You need these superpowers. And actually, I didn't read this quote, but there was another place in here, like, it's like, really? It was in the Gomchen Lam Rim early on. It said, uh, yeah, early in the Gomchen Lam Rim, it said, train in the six perfections in general. In particular, achieve serenity to produce superknowledges in insight with the decisive understanding of thusness. Thus, then engage in Tantra. So the only thing they talk about with the serenity is the produce the super knowledge. So I'm like, okay, I guess I should get on board with these. So we'll spend a little bit of time with that. Okay, and then, so, you're, okay, your virtue is potent, and soon you'll gain the super knowledges, the supernormal powers, and then realizing insight into the profound, you will overcome rebirth and samsara. So these are all things that serenity is going to be a part of. Serenity is an insight, but you're going to need it, and it's going to help you with that. So, to me, there are some wonderful benefits there, but there's also like some pitfalls or some dangers related to these benefits that we're warned about. We're always warned not to become attached to the bliss that that you experience once you have attained full serenity. You can get sidetracked. So they're from the beginning. They always warn about that. So, And the other is not to become complacent once you have some skill and concentration. You might just think, good enough, you know. 
So they say that once you reach these jhanas or even the, the form or the formless realms, it's tempting to want to remain in that peaceful state. And the Buddha actually went out of his way to help. There's a really great story, one of the, one of the suttas that Bhikkhu Bodhi um, explains when he explains all these different suttas of a king who, a young king who had actually developed these and he, he thought that was good enough and he was going to visit the Buddha and the Buddha went out of his way to find him. And they had a really interesting conversation in a potter's shed. But the, he didn't, the Buddha didn't identify himself. So for the longest time, the, the king didn't know he was talking to the Buddha. But then the Buddha showed him how it wasn't enough to just have this level of these jhanas or even formless realms, whatever he had gotten to. And he convinced him of that. And then I didn't finish that whole teaching, but apparently that young king then left there and actually was uh, died soon after that encounter, which I think is partly why the Buddha you know, emanated himself there. So it's kind of a, it was a memorable, memorable story. So once, if you, if you just got stuck there, if the king had just stayed with that kind of motivation, there's no progress. You will never get liberated if you just stay in a form realm or a formless realm. You're going to actually, you know, that's not liberation. And so, yeah, you don't want to make that your goal. You don't want to get kind of sidetracked there. So from the beginning, they, warn us about this. The other thing that can happen is you can confuse the bliss that comes with serenity and that, you know, when you have that, there's an absence of manifest afflictions in the mind because you've obtained certain levels of absorption so you're, you're free with that. You don't have manifest afflictions in the mind then. But some people have confused that with being liberated. In fact, many non-Buddhists have. And so that, again, is you're sidetracked. You think you've, there's a lot of stories about that. You think you're, you've gotten liberated, but actually you've just gotten some level of concentration where you don't have manifest afflictions. I had a friend who, it might be Muktananda, he only t- teaches with a chalkboard. He spent two years in silent retreat in a cave in India. He's Hindu. Came out of that cave and yelled at somebody right away. <laughs> His anger just... And he just was so frustrated with himself, he quit speaking. He never spoke after that. He taught with a chalkboard. He sang chants, but he never spoke again. It was just like he had done all this meditation, and he gets out of his two-year retreat, and the first thing he does is scream at somebody. It's like, that isn't it. <laughs> so anyway, that was a story that I knew from a friend of mine. I had met him too. Okay, so when we have these, you know, when we develop serenity, one of the great benefits of con- having serenity or even concentration is our virtuous activities will be much more focused then. So they'll have a stronger effect on our mind. So then when we do breathing meditation or when we do lamrim meditations or when we do recitations or prayers or when we're doing visualizations and the tantric practices, we'll be like our mind will be focused where we want it to go and we won't be like crippled with the distraction you know, it, it's, there's, a, there's power to having concentration. It makes the mind powerful. And that will help us to develop our good qualities because so, they'll have a stronger effect on the mind. So that's awesome importance of developing this. These, um, and then also serenity and concentration are the foundation for generating insight. And we need the union of serenity and insight in order to 
eventually destroy all of our afflictive and cognitive obscurations. You can think of those, they're like shrouding your mind. You know, our minds are just like fog in there, you know. And we'll be able to clear that out, and then that is what allows us to uh, get out of cyclic existence, and that will allow us getting rid of that fog will, and all those obscurations will eventually allow us to be of the greatest benefit to others. You also need serenity in order to actualize the generation and the completion stage of highest yoga tantra. And then there's the superknowledges, the importance of the superknowledges. So again, Atisha says, and Venable read this quote when she taught this as well in this class, all Buddhas say the cause of the completion of the collections whose nature is merit and exalted wisdom, is the development of the superknowledges. Can you read that again? All Buddhas say the cause of the completion of the collections, whose nature is merit and exalted wisdom, is the development of the superknowledges. Just as a bird with undeveloped wings cannot fly in the sky, those without the power of the superknowledges cannot work for the good of living beings. It's like, really? Okay, we better pay attention to these a little bit more. So what Venable said is these super knowledges are really important for bodhisattvas so that we can benefit others. So, okay, I thought we better get into it a little more than I usually do. So what do they what are the benefits of these super knowledges? They help us to accumulate merit and generate wisdom very quickly so that we can progress on the path. And then for bodhisattvas it will make it easier to benefit sentient beings according to their needs, to be more effective, essentially. So there are six super-knowledges. So I will just uh, list them. There's first the supernormal powers. That's the first one. There's the divine ear. It's the second. Understanding others' minds. The fourth is recollection of past lives. The fifth is the divine eye. And the sixth is the destruction of the pollutants. So these first five are all considered mundane. Whereas the sixth one, the destruction of pollutants, is actually super mundane. Because with that, you're going to be your mind is delivered, you know, there's deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom. Basically, you're going to be free from samsara because you've destroyed all the pollutants, all the afflictions, afflictive obscurations. So the first one, the supernormal powers, there are five of those. They're considered mundane, miraculous abilities. They're also called siddhis. So the first, and and although they relate to the mind, they all kind of have to do with the body in a certain way. The first one is you can replicate your body and then make it one again. We could all go in and vote with all these bodies. (laughs) That would help the world a lot. (laughs) I'll make about 10 million and go to the voting booths. You can pass through solid objects such as walls and mountains as if they were air. That would be interesting. You can walk on water as if it was solid earth. You can fly through the air like a bird, even if your legs are crossed. (laughs) I don't know why they say even with one's legs crossed. 
I don't know. I think there are stories actually uh, in Tibet of people seeing people doing that. I've, I read something that Soltram gave me. Some of these Doha stories, yeah. death stories. Yeah, I read one in there. And then the fifth one is touch the sun and the moon with one's hand. So the second one of the six super knowledges was the divine ear, which is also called clear audience, so you can hear far away. I'm just kind of going to describe what they are first, and then we'll talk about how, how they're beneficial. The third one was understanding others' minds. So this is a way where we understand the minds of other beings, and we encompass their mind with our mind. So they... I, I didn't. I forgot to look up a couple of these things. I had listened to Bhikkhu Bodhi talk about some of these. I'll just um, read them, but I can't remember the details on a few of them. So you understand a mind affected by lust is affected by lust, and a mind unaffected by lust is unaffected by lust. That's easy. You understand a mind affected by hate is affected by hate, and a mind unaffected by hate is unaffected by hate. Also, easy to understand. Same with confusion. You understand a mind affected by confusion is affected by confusion, and a mind unaffected by confusion is unaffected by confusion. This is what we think when we're mind-reading others sometimes. But here you really have the ability, because you have such uh, ability to concentrate. And then the ones that I can't remember what he said about, um, you, the, you understand a contracted mind is contracted, and a distracted mind is distracted. The distracted I get, but the contracted I don't think was a positive, as I recall. Um, you understand an exalted mind is exalted, and an unexalted mind is unexalted. A surpassed mind is surpassed, and an unsurpassed mind is unsurpassed, but I can't remember what those referred to exactly. A uh, concentrated mind is concentrated, an unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated, a liberated mind is liberated, and an unliberated mind is unliberated. So those are the kind of things that you would understand about others' minds. And then you can recollect, recollect past lives. That's the fourth one, the, the aspects and particulars of that. The fifth one, again, was divine eye, which is also called clairvoyance. So in there, that's your understanding how beings pass on according to their actions. It's kind of like the night that, that the Buddha became enlightened. First he saw his own past lives, then he saw the past lives of others, that's, I think, how he formulated his views about the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness, because he just saw, wow, you do this, suffering. You do this, happiness. And the last one is destruction of the pollutants, so then you're free from samsara. So then how do a bodhisattva use these super-knowledges? Okay, so with the first one, the supernova powers, where you get to travel here and there and Pretty quick, no no airline tickets needed. You can go to the Pure Lands, and there you can listen to teachings, <laughs> and you can make lots of offerings in the Pure Lands and create a lot of merit. So that would help their own practice. In the human realm, you could dis discreetly benefit others. You'd know where your spiritual mentors were, your Dharma friends, your disciples, who you have karmic connections with where they're living, and you could go there very quickly. That would be helpful. When we call our 911, <laughs> our teacher would like, boop, we go there. So in the second one with the divine ear, the clear audience, you can hear teachings in other places. You can understand all languages. 
Venerable said once, you could hear what your students are talking about, what their Dharma discussions are about, so you know what they're mixed up on. Actually, you know, um, Ajahn Mun could do this. I don't know if it was hearing or, or, the, or knowing their minds. Wouldn't that be something to be his disciple? <laughs> Living with your teacher who can read your mind. Hmm. That would be a training. And then, you know, if you knew all the languages, you could speak to anybody. That'd be great. In their own language. The third one, the knowledge of others' minds. You'd know the interests and the dispositions. You'd know the emotional patterns and the habits, the habitual thoughts of others. And then you could adjust your teaching because you'd know them inside and out, so to speak. You'd know when their mind was full of afflictions or free of afflictions. You'd know when they were, like, ripe receptive or when you need to just like you know you just you'd be your skill would be tremendous the fourth one knowing uh their past lives they'd know let's see okay they'd know who you'd know who your spiritual mentors were who your what dharma practices you've done who your spiritual friends have been people that you know and you could seek them out and help them to progress along the path you could get back to the practices that you already you know, have made connection with. You'd be able to find your disciples that you had a Dharma connection with, so you can continue to guide and teach them. That'd be awesome. Then, and actually, I think sometimes that Venerable Jigme talks about this a lot. Um, sometimes when we have quite a connection with somebody, she always say to me, I think you have a previous karma connection. You've said this a number of times to me. You know, when you, where there's certain people or teachers or that you just really resonate with you might have a connection maybe they found you again <laughs> let's see and then the sixth one is the destruction of the pollutants so you would know what level of spiritual attainment you have what paths you've attained which of course this is related to insight now but you have to have the cultivation of insight to do that but it relies on the serenity to get there so the Buddha didn't allow his disciples to talk about these kind of things. These, he wanted his disciples to remain humble. But it's interesting what his holiness says about this. Um, I found this kind of helpful because sometimes it always just kind of seemed a little far out to me. But actually I got a, heard a story from an inmate actually who was put in solitary for two years. He's somebody that we know. And I've met a few times. And he had known martial arts. He was a black belt before that. So they train a lot the mind when they do martial arts. So he knew something about meditation. And he told me the last time I saw him, he said, I never knew this about him, that he was in solitary for two years. He did a lot of meditation. And he said, I could remember the numbers on the houses. He could see all this stuff in his mind as clear as day. All this stuff from when he was young, his memory just... So here's what His Holiness says. It's kind of like that. He says, the ability to know is a natural property of consciousness. Even in our ordinary experiences, we sometimes have premonitions of what might happen. I think these indicate that the seed for such cognitive powers lies within us. Through meditative practices and single point and concentration in particular, we begin to sharpen the focus of our memory and mindfulness. In that way, our ability to recollect experiences increases. As the power of recollection becomes sharper, 
the potential for precognition is enhanced as well. That's interesting. It kind of corroborates what this inmate said, what this person said. So you will meet people who have clairvoyance, in, even in this life, who may not have developed serenity, but sometimes that happens because of their previous karma, the power of their karma. And so they may know something about future events or some about other people's thoughts, but these are considered to be kind of limited in scope, and they generally are lost at death. And it doesn't stop the person from falling into the lower realms. <laughs> it doesn't indicate that they have that those people have spiritual realizations. It's just a karmic thing from previous lives. So it actually, for some people, if they don't haven't like done the preliminary work in a spiritual practice, it might be a distraction. They might even use those powers for the wrong reasons. You know, if you. You could use them to gain personal power. You could use them to gain respect or material things, whatever. So we, we want to develop these powers based on our spiritual practice, based on the stages of the path, so that we use them to benefit others and use them in a constructive way. So it's funny. I didn't know this until this week. That um, So as we've heard, we've heard some stories in the Abbey from people. These powers are for people that don't have like a spiritual path to put them into could be useless at best and harmful at worst. And it, it, I never knew that Devadatta, the reason he left the Buddha's Sangha was he was infatuated with the personal fame and profit he earned through his mastery of supernormal powers. I never knew that before. And that was, I found that in the Princeton Dictionary. They read a lot. People make dictionaries. They're very wide read. So we that isn't our goal to gain these powers. Our goal is to gain liberation and enlightenment. But with the if you had the you know the proper uh, motivation, these would be quite useful. And actually, also clairvoyance isn't complete and can be erroneous until you're fully enlightened. So not to be completely relied upon, apparently. Okay, the next topic in our outline is what to do while focusing on the object. And it starts with kind of a general presentation of the objects of meditation, and then it goes into a more specific one. But first we'll talk more generally about meditation objects. So, you know, as we all know, sentient beings have very different dispositions and tendencies. And, and for this, partly for this reason, the Buddha taught different meditation objects to develop serenity. So this is Lama Samkhapa some, some speaking now. He says, I'll say, while it's true that, he says, any internal, any object, internal, external, can be used to cultivate serenity, but many benefits are derived from choosing a meditation object that helps familiarize the mind with virtue. So yeah, although you could start with anything, it's it's really useful to think about something that familiarizes the mind with virtue, which is why in our tradition, and this actually comes from Kamala Shila and the um, King of Concentration Sutra and another sutra, we use the image of the Buddha a lot in Tibetan Buddhism, a visualized image. And there's so many benefits. It's a virtuous object. 
And there's many benefits of continually remembering the Buddha. It accumulates a lot of merit. It helps us think about the Buddha's qualities. The body, speech, and mind of a Buddha. And then when, if we attune our mind to that, we get really um, familiar with that. It's likely that when, we'll, when we die, if we bring that up, like, you know, just when you walk down to the barn and you pass that Buddha, when I pass that Buddha there, it always calms my mind. Or when I walk around Kuan Yin, there's always something that I work with my mind with when I'm there. It's a reminder. It's a symbol that reminds me of something. And so this visualized image will remind you of the Buddha's qualities, and it can make your mind much calmer. And, you know, you can have a mind that develops refuge. And if you have that on board as a practice, then when you're dying, it's like, boom, you've got, you know, you've got a tool there that's going to be quite useful. So it's considered to be very useful at the time of death. It can help you to have a virtuous mind, and then virtuous seeds will ripen. And so that helps with our refuge, which makes the mind very inspired. It creates a kind of merit that contributes to the attainment of the Buddha's form body. It can contribute to other practices that we might do, like we do a lot of visualization practices in Tibetan Buddhism. And so sometimes we visualize the field of merit, or we do visualizations when we do prostrations. And it's really nice to feel yourself in the presence of the Buddha, because you're not just like putting a postcard up there. (laughs) You're like a visualized image that you're in your mind, like the Buddha is there. This is the Buddha. It's not like a picture of the Buddha. This is the Buddha. You know, you're a real. You're supposed to think of this image as as the Buddha, as a being, not as a picture. When you do the, when you do um, use this, and then it's also used in tantric. You know, it gets you used to visualization, and there's a lot of complex visualizations in tantra. So one thing I this text, I think this text explains this quite well, and I think these are important, really important points. Um, I did some of these wrong for a while, which is why I was like, well, I didn't really get that right. They talk a lot of times, and this says, you know, it quite clear that to facilitate this image appearing to, you start by looking at the rough features of the body of the Buddha. And you might start with a picture or a tanka, which is visual, but eventually it's going to be a mental image. And when those rough features are stable, you meditate on the details. When they're stable, you don't go to the details first. This is the mistake I made. So here's one thing they say. Visualizing several times successively the head, the two arms, the torso, and the two legs. In the end, when you can get a general picture in your mind of the whole body at once, distinguishing roughly the features from head to foot with the limbs, although it may not be clear and include the light, you should content yourself with that as you have found the object. Venable said this again and again, but I didn't quite follow that. And then here's the part where I went wrong. Then wanting to make it clear, you visualize it again and again. It may become clear, but it will hinder your concentration. I actually found that to be true. You have to get the stability before the clarity. You have to have stability first. It's really clear in the text. I can't say I did that. So she always says, whatever, whatever appears to you, be satisfied with that. You have to go for stability first. 
Although it may not be very clear, if the object is unmistaken, you will achieve concentration soon and attain clarity easily. That's what our text says. This Gomshin Lamrim has a lot of really good pointers. So, yeah, we gain familiarity. We might first look at an external object with our eye consciousness, you know, the visual consciousness. But when we meditate on things, we're using our mental consciousness. So with an external object, it's not that physical thing that you're using to develop serenity. It's not the final thing. Actually, it's a conceptual appearance to your mind that you're meditating on. It's the mental consciousness. The final object has to be one that's the mental consciousness, even if you start with one that's something that you see with your eyes at first. So like when they taught us, she taught us the casinas. You looked at it, you got familiar with it, and you took it away. You kept using the external casina until you could actually see it without without it there, and then sometimes you had to refresh it. Finally, you had it, it's like, wow, I can see that. I don't need the image, the external image at all. Same, It's the same idea, exact same idea. So why is this important? Well, really, when you start dying, these sensory consciousnesses are going to be gone, and you're going to have a mental consciousness. We want to be able to use that mental consciousness and focus it at the time of death. So although some people think if I stare at a candle, it makes my mind very peaceful and calm, well, yeah, you might get away from some discursive thoughts, but that's not serenity. Just getting rid of discursive thoughts is not serenity. Serenity has, has much more to it than that. Like, remember, you have to have the pliancy, you have to be able to keep the mind vivid, stable. Just getting rid of discursive thoughts, you can, you know, you can do that if you're, like, lethargic. I don't have discursive thoughts when I'm like sitting, you know, or as Guy Newland said, hit him with a hammer, knock him out. doesn't have any discursive thoughts. He's unconscious. So serenity is a mind that's clear, it's bright, it's vivid, it's focused, it's stable. So then when we choose an object, we want to, this, this will depend on our different, our faculties, our dispositions. You don't have to use all the various objects that they have. But there's some general advice about, you know, if you're wondering which one you should use. So they say that people with sharp faculties could maybe do this on their own by reading and understanding the texts that describe this. But most people should use, consult their spiritual teacher. Um, and a sangha makes a strong case that before you try to develop serenity in any serious way, if you have strong afflictions, you need to work with those first, especially the strongest. It's just going to keep intruding in the mind otherwise. So that's why when we get to this other part where they present the actual objects, there were four types. And one is called objects for purifying behavior. It's the second of the four that we get into. That's what you need to be focusing on if you have really strong afflictions, because it's they're just they just get in the way. You know, you're trying to, you know, put your mind on the Buddha or your breath or whatever it is, and you're like, I can't stand this. <laughs> you got to work with your anger first, or your lust, or whatever it is. You got to clear those out. So that's why they have this whole category. So he says, it says here, you have to determine which affliction is the most intrusive and uncontrolled. Those are the words. That's easy to understand. That's our experience. Uncontrolled and intrusive. 
So then cultivate the antidotes to that, and then your meditation will progress and it will be noticeable. Your mind will be more malleable when you're meditating. Your ethical conduct and your psychological well-being will improve. So you have a more stable ethical mind. That's now one that you can develop with concentration with, and bodhicitta and wisdom can grow in that mind. So it's kind of like the three higher trainings. Ethics, concentration, wisdom. It's just kind of fleshing it out a little bit, in a sense. Okay, so... One thing also to know as a general thing is the difference between like serenity and insight. Okay, so serenity, you know, is a stabilizing meditation. You're focusing the mind. Analytical meditation is more for insight. And there's the difference in those two isn't actually the object. The difference is how the mind engages with the object. You can use the breath for, for serenity. You can use the breath for insight. You can use emptiness for insight. You can use emptiness for serenity. Serenity, the object of emptiness can be an object of serenity meditation, right? It's kind of, in a sense, like what we're trying to train ourselves in right now when we do the Lam Rim meditations. We do the analytical meditation. We use the analysis. We try to generate this feeling, and then we try to stabilize the mind on it because that makes it all more potent because the concentration makes your mind more powerful. So we're actually training ourselves in this right now. So the whereas serenity is single-pointed, insight is analyzing deeply. And insight allows the mind's scope to like examine different facets and characteristics of an object so we understand it deeply. So those are kind of like general things that we should have a feel for, I think. There's a lot to say about this topic. I'm just trying to pick out the things that make the most sense. Now, to me, this next section is new. We spoke about it with Venerable, but I had read about this before, and I always found it kind of confusing. Um, so this is now presenting the actual objects. These are the different um, four objects. They're called universal. The first one is universal objects, also called extensive objects, depending on which text you're reading. The second was objects for purifying behavior. The third was objects of skill or objects of skillful observation. And the fourth was called objects for purifying afflictions. In our text, it was objects for purifying kleshas. So these are four general objects in different categories. And actually, I've read that these include all the objects of meditation, these four. So... The references for this are mostly walking through walls, but then it turns out that Geshe Sopa's new edition, the, the fourth fourth commentary he has on the Lamrim, I, I found that so much clearer than what I'd read before. So they started to make sense to me after I read him. So I used some of his stuff. So the first one, the universal or extensive objects of meditation. These, this comes completely from, uh, well, not all, from Venerable Children, from our text, and then walking through walls in Geshe Sopa. So these are objects that are used both for developing serenity and insight. Oh yeah, here you go. this is where Geshe Sopa says all objects of meditation fit into these four categories. Yeah, that's these four that we just mentioned. So it's Geshe Sopa who said that. Oh yeah, these, I'm sorry, I'm mixing it up now. Okay, we're in the first one, the universal objects. It has four, four in it, and all objects of meditation fit within these four. So we're in universal or extensive objects. There's four. There are 
analytical images or discursive images. There are non-analytical images or non-discursive images. The third one is limits of existence or limits of phenomena. And the fourth is achievement of your purpose. So everything we've ever, object we've ever had somewhere fits in here. So the first two relate to how objects, they're spoken of in terms of how the mind observes the object. Keshisopa says how they're generated by the meditator. Their mental images are reflections of thought in the mind. They're generated by the, by the meditator. So this will become more clear as we, these are the analytical ones. So those are things, these are objects that you observe due to insight, insight that's analyzing an object. So they're used to develop insight. An example of that would be like the Four Noble Truths. The mind analyzes a topic by delving into its qualities and details, and this way creates a concept. And then the non-analytical images, those are the ones used, observed in serenity. Now the mind is focusing on the object without doing any analysis. These are used for developing samadhi and serenity. So here the mind gets stabilized on the object, and the image of that object appears to the mind kind of like a reflection. So that's the first two. Uh, the third one is the limits of phenomena or limits of existence. So these are, aren't things that are like posited by the meditator, like the first two. They are actually in reference to an observed object. So there are like two types. It can mean two things. The limits of existence completely encompasses what exists, or the limit of existence that it completely encompasses the way in which things exist. And actually that encompasses everything. There's nothing outside of that. There's, the, there's what exists and the way in which things exist. This is how Geshe Sopa explains this. So let's give the examples because it maybe will help. So the f example of the first type, limits of existence completely encompassing what exists. So Vasubandhu takes all composite phenomena and puts it, explains it in three ways. You can say, like we're doing in debate class, you know, with our categories. The five aggregates are one way to describe all composite phenomena. The 12 sources are one way to explain all composite phenomena. The 18 constituents are one way to explain all composite phenomena. So everything that exists can be included in, in that, those frameworks. Do you follow what I'm saying? No. Okay, so this, this is a category of meditation objects. It's called limits of phenomena. It refers to observed objects. The limits of existence are posited in reference to an observed object. And it can mean one of two things. The limits of existence that completely encompass what exists, the limits of existence that completely encompasses the way in which things exist. So one, one way you can describe what exists, if you think about composite or impermanent phenomena, the five aggregates, let's just stick something that's more familiar, that, that encompasses all composite phenomena if you take it in the broad context. Sometimes we think about it just as the body and the mind, but actually there's a way to understand the five aggregates is all impermanent phenomena. So that's, that's a very limit of existence. It's kind of like the big pie. 
So I think of it. Or you could say, does that make sense? More sense? A little more sense? So Geshe Sopa says, in a, in a, not literally, not in a literal way, but another way, maybe a more practical way for, I think, you could say the Four Noble Truths, they include all things that are to be known. It's not like, that's not literally true, because there are objects of knowledge that are not part of the Four Noble Truths. But everything you need to know to attain liberation is in there. So he calls this, he says, nothing more is needed. And in that sense, the Four Noble Truths are a limit of existence. It's kind of like the big pie of, you know, the limits of existence, everything that exists. It's just the word they use. It's kind of hard. I never understood that one before until I read that. Walking through walls didn't make any sense to me. I was supposed to what wouldn't be included in the Four Noble Truths. Oh, probably things like non-virtue. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Well, how about uncomposed space? You don't need that. You don't need that to gain liberation. That's just a mental construct. You could do without that. I don't know. He didn't say any more. But we could we could figure that out. Okay, so that's an example of the first type. The second type was the way in things, the way things exist. So one example of that would be emptiness. Emptiness completely encompasses the way in which all things exist. And then so when you have, so where these come into the meditation thing is when you reach an understanding of this, some object of the limit of existence, for example, emptiness, when you reach an understanding of emptiness, then you fix your mind on that and do stabilizing meditation. So it's just in the it's just actually what we've been taught to do, but they're putting a lot of fancy language to it. And they're also including all the objects. I mean, when if you think about like I think it's good to include these because like in the Pali tradition they study a lot, like the five aggregates is an advanced topic. You study, you meditate on that after you've done the four establishments of mindfulness because it's considered harder. And those, the 12 sources and the 18 constituents are hard, harder and harder to understand. And there's a reason for using them. Like, here's what Jeffrey said about this. He mentioned, like, um, well, he puts this under, where was that in here? Oh, he puts, it comes under a later thing, but it's the same topic, so I'll say it now. Um, in this category of four type of topics, the object of skilled observation is the fourth. In there, they also have the five aggregates, the 12 sources, the 18 constituents, 12 links, things that you want to adopt and abandon and all that. Those are all considered skilled objects of observation. But what Jeffrey says about this is interesting. We might as well present it now. He says, for example, like the 18 constituents, and I found this a little bit true during the winter retreat because I did a lot of meditation on certain things from the Pali point of view, and it wasn't like that exactly, but it actually started to make my mind feel differently about like what the self was in this mix because I was doing the four establishments of mindfulness, and after a while the, the idea of the self became a little bit different from just like, because the feeling, you know, like if you can, how do I say this? 
if you can just have feeling experience without thinking there's a person attached there to it, it's a different thing than I'm feeling this. It's just like feeling. You're just concentrating on feeling all retreat or you know what, whatever breath or which is the body or the feelings or the contents, you know, the thoughts. You know, when you do the four establishments of mindfulness, after a while, when you keep categorizing that way, it becomes like there's no person there. There's just this thought comes and this feeling comes and where's the person? You don't need a person. There's just, you know, it's kind of like that. So here's what he says, because I had a little bit of sense of that this retreat. He said, teachers repeatedly enumerate the 12 sources and 18 constituents in order to emphasize a sense of multiplicity of phenomena that are the basis of imputing or designating person. This practice helps greatly to crowd out the sense of self. It's kind of true. You're crowding it out. Like you're thinking, you know, you do this scan that Goenka does and like, I got this feeling here and I got this feeling there. I'm going in and out, you know, I'm looking at all these parts and feeling, 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 feeling. And then I do one day I do, okay, I'm going to do it this way. Thought, 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 thought. Pretty soon it's like you crowd out. Where's the person who's doing the thinking? Who's the person doing the feeling? Kind of like that. Kind of, not that I ever lost any sense of self, but it did kind of get more like there's just a pile of feelings, a pile of thoughts, and you know, it just became a little less personal. That's as close as I got. So it crowds out the sense of self and prepares a way for recognition of the imputed nature of the person. That's, there's some truth to that. I think we can kind of see that in our own experience. Okay, so now we're back on, we had the first, well, we've done the first three of the four. There were the analytical images, the non-analytical images, the limits of phenomena, very hard to explain, but basically it's kind of like the big pie. And the one that's kind of interesting, and then there are objects for purifying behavior. These are the ones where we're mostly working a lot of times. We're trying to get our mind, our temperament kind of worked out, all of our afflictions worked out. These are, this relates mostly to afflictions, things we're habituated to, the various disturbing emotions and afflictions. These predominate in our life and they disturb the mind. They're due a lot to habituation from even previous lives. And we want to meditate on something that will oppose that. You know, like if you have a lot of uh, desire in the mind, a lot of attachment. You need to look, like if it's like lust for a person, you need to look at the unattractive aspects of bodies if you're lusting after bodies. Or if you're, you know, if you have to look at the, anytime you're attached to something, you need to find the unattractive aspects of it. You might say foul, you might say this or that, but the actual word is, is unattractive, I think. We sometimes use the word repulsive. But Bhikkhu Bodhi is pretty clear on that, at least in the Pali. It pretty much means unattractive. So the unclean aspects of the body to counteract sexual desire, things like that. These are things that we're well trained in. Here we've talked about a lot. When you have a lot of anger in the mind, you need to focus on maybe metta or love. If you have a lot of confusion, they say to meditate on the 12 links and dependent arising. If you have a lot of conceit, then they want you to meditate on the five aggregates, the 12 sources, the 18 constituents, because we all get confused every time. It will get rid of you, will deflate your conceit. They're hard to understand. And then if you have a lot of distracting discursive thoughts, you should meditate on the breath because it will unify your mind. It's easy. It's a big object. It's easy to find. You don't have to realize emptiness. Try to meditate on emptiness as your main object. 
That's going to be hard because you can't recognize it. Better to go to the breath, something that you can find, things like that. So those are the ones for purifying your behavior. And then the objects of skilled observation. These are ones that help us to increase our knowledge. So this will help us to increase our concentration, our wisdom, and to realize emptiness. And then the fourth group is the objects for purifying afflictions. And this is why I always got confused, because the objects for purifying behavior, and then they call it objects for purifying afflictions, but it's basically easy. The ones for purifying behavior have to do with the afflictions that we're used to. The ones for purifying afflictions actually are this thing, it has all to do with the realms. Desire realm, form, and formless realm. It's that thing that they talk about, like, when you're in the first jhana and you want to achieve the second jhana, you've got to see the unattractive aspects, the coarse aspects of the first jhana, so that you decide to go to the second jhana. You know, you do that all the way through. And that's kind of a mundane uh, kind of, you actually are suppressing afflictions. That's why they call it that. You see the lower levels of concentration as coarse, the higher levels as more peaceful. So it is kind of, they call it purifying afflictions. Another example of this is maybe like cutting the root of the afflictions. So there you might meditate on the Four Noble Truths. This is, a, this is objects for purifying afflictions still. You know, desisting aspects of the Four Noble Truths, those are now more transcendental. Whereas these first ones where you're just coursing through the jhanas, those are mundane. People, that's where people get lost sometimes. They're like, yeah, this is nice, but there's more peace if I move up the road a little bit, more peace here. But you're still stuck in samsara. You haven't, you've maybe gotten out of the desire realm, but now you're stuck in the form of the formless realm. So you want to also, the other kind is cutting the root of things. So these are transcendental paths, not mundane paths. And they always bring this up because people get stuck in these. Because they're so peaceful. I find this myself. Like sometimes I'm in the meditation hall, I'm like, I just want my mind to be peaceful. I'm not going to do anything else but that, you know. But I I won't stick in that because it's so temporary. Never really. It's kind of like the story I told about my friend's teacher. I think it was Muktananda. You know, two years in the meditation cave, and the first thing he does is go out and scream at somebody, you know. You could do that with with serenity, you know. You could, like, you could, you can, I know you can do this. You can, you can uh, temporarily suppress manifest afflictions, and then you can get up off the cushion and be a real jerk. <laughs> so it's never going to cut it. You have to go to the root of these things. So I think that's enough. I found those really confusing for the longest time. I think Geshe Sopa makes it a little clearer. At least we know what the categories are now. The names were kind of confusing. So, are there any comments or questions? I probably can't answer the questions, but I can listen to the comments. <laughs> it's a topic I like a lot. If you could please repeat the um, objects for uh, purifying behavior. Yeah. Okay, so these are the ones that we're used to, that Venerable teaches us a lot. These are the ones where we have whole handouts on this of uh, antidotes to the afflictions handout that Venerable has. These are the ones for the afflictions that 
when, when we're talking about afflictions, we're not usually thinking about, oh, I want to go from the first to the second jhana. <laughs> we're usually thinking about, I'm angry, I'm jealous, I'm having confusion, I'm this, I'm that. And the ones that combat that, the ones that they're pretty much temporary, all of these ones are temporary in that group. They don't list here anywhere something that would cut things from the root. They were all things, as they said earlier, you can't work on these more subtle, you can't actually, you shouldn't think about developing serenity till you've gotten these big disturbing emotions out of the mind more. Because you're going to be fighting yourself. You're going to just, it'll be frustrating. You know, you, you have to have realistic expectations about what you can do in your practice. And one of them is, is if you have a lot of trouble with afflictive emotions and disturbing attitudes, it's going to be difficult to concentrate your mind because they're just going to get in the way. So you've got to learn how to work with those first. And so those, you know, yeah, like for me, restlessness, you know, is is a problem both mentally and physically. And so using the breath is really, really helpful for me. Really helpful. I use, I do breath meditation every day. And I do it specifically so I can not be a jerk, basically. I want my mind to be like more calm. Tranquilized is actually the word I would use. <laughs> I'm trying to tranquilize myself so I can just, you know, come from a place I want to come from and not be like, anxious or whatever. It actually works very well for anxiety. Oh yeah, they do list some here. Five objects for purifying behavior. Great desire, strong hatred or anger, confusion, extreme conceit, many distracting and discursive thoughts. And I think I added, or somebody did, jealousy. But these five are listed by, I think, Sankapa. It's kind of like close to, you know, it's kind of like, it is a little bit like the five hindrances. And that's what you have to do, you know, in order, uh, let me say that, in the four establishments of mindfulness, there comes a place where if you want to progress, you have to deal with those. That's what you're, when you go into the jhanas, that's what you've gotten rid of, basically. You know, there's a lot of things that you've done, but the five hindrances are like, those are the things you're clearing out so that you can actually get your mind to concentrate. What does the phrase, make your bodhicitta firm first, mean? Does that mean you have to attain the path of accumulation? He didn't say more. There wasn't more said, but maybe I could look it up. At least I didn't take more from that. Um, But I, you know, I could look, I'll look and see if there's more and I'll let you know. I didn't, um, I don't have more of my notes. But he did say, oh yeah, the one thing I wanted to mention to to close is... um, I kind of took this thing from Lama Tsongkhapa as a motivation, and I realized, no, I should say this at the end. So he does say, you know, after you've increased the stability of the spirit of awakening, then, you know, train in high meditative stabilizations, you know, learn about it, aspire to it, and train in those. But then he says things that I think is really good advice for us. He says, even if you're not able to fully train in meditative stabilizations, strive from time to time to train in single-pointed concentration to whatever extent you're able. If you don't do that, you'll continually be strained with the fault of breaking the precepts. 
And in other lives, you'll find it most difficult to learn the trainings for entering the many doors of the bodhisattva's meditative stabilizations. So he's kind of saying, like, plant some seeds in this life when you have the opportunity. And why would he talk about breaking precepts? Because like what I'm saying for myself, if my mind isn't at a certain, if I'm like anxious, I interrupt people, I get short with people, I, it's easier for me to go to anger, my mind's too charged up. And it's hard for me to keep my ethical conduct where I want it to be. So I have to like tranquilize myself is the way I say it. For me, that's the one, you know, it's the, it's, but for other people, it's going to be something else that they need to do. And by working, so with those various uh, afflictions that we just spoke of, whatever's predominant, work with that. Then that will become less and you'll have the opportunity to work with some more, some different ones. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. But, so, but if we don't spend some time trying to get our mind more stable, we, it will be more difficult for us. We'll just be distracted all the time. Our mind will be pulled around. You know, you're, we are like, like that image of like where they put the nose ring through you and just drag you around. Our afflictions drag us around. This is a huge tool to help to temporarily suppress that. One time I was having a really hard day here. It was the day before I went to Taiwan. And I just was so out to lunch. And... I don't use the word meltdown, but some people would use that word. And I went out. I had to just leave what I was doing here. They were going to pour concrete in this little shanty cabin. And I'm like, I don't have any information on this. The person who has, holds the information is gone. I'm going to Taiwan tomorrow. I have no information. And I just, my mind just blew a fuse. So I go out into the woods. And what I did to take care of my mind I didn't even tell Venable what it was, but when I came back, she said, oh, I see you using your Dharma practice very well, because I was calm then. And I looked at her and I said, do you know what I did when I was out in the woods? She said, it doesn't matter. Whatever you did, you worked with your mind. What I did was something I do. I cried, and I laid down in the grass, and I stared at a piece of grass, because it stabilized my mind. And I do that sometimes when I'm like way bent out of shape in the earlier years here. I would go out in the woods, I would cry, I would look at a piece of grass or a leaf, and I would just stabilize my mind and get myself back on track. You know? And she came back, and I'm like, to me, this was not Dharma practice. I come back, I didn't tell her what I'd done. She said, yeah, you're practicing the Dharma. She was so, like, very good. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But it is. You know, I thought about it later. It's like, for me, it helps me to cry as long as I'm not wallowing. It helps me access my emotions more and you know, like spend some time with what's going on inside. As long as I don't wallow, I'm, that helps me. And I've wallowed sometimes, and it hasn't been helpful, but I've kind of learned how far to take that. And then to stabilize my mind like that helped me to calm down. So just if it's, you know, if it happens to be looking at a piece of grass or whatever it is, it stabilized my mind. I got myself back to base, <laughs> back to... I was out of, not in orbit anymore. <laughs> So then he says, uh, you must never give up your effort. Even in this life, your mind will become steadily less distracted, making your accumulation of virtue very powerful. In future lives, you will have physical mental bliss and a joyful mind, and thereby easily complete the perfections of meditative stabilization. So all the efforts we make now, it's kind of like exercise. I learned after years of helping people exercise that 
even one bout of exercise is beneficial to the body. You used to say you have to string them together, which is true. The better, the more effects, as long as it's not too much or too little, better. But even one bout of exercise is beneficial for a person's body. For me, one session of yoga is quite beneficial for my body. You know, so everything we do here is helpful. It's better to string them together. But so how do we decide what to meditate on day to day? So I think what I would do is I would read, read, read about this topic because it will become more clear to you. And then listen to Venerable Children's teachings about this topic, especially in, in the Lam Rem text, the part they talk about this is in the meditative stabilization part. I think that it's hard to read Lama Tsongkhapa. To me, his chapter, his section on that is the best thing I've ever read. But a more accessible book is Jin Lam Rempa's book. Uh, it's not Calming the Mind. Yeah, anyway, Jin Lam Rempa has a book about this. It's straight Lama Tsongkhapa, but much easier to read. And that will help. You definitely need guidance from a teacher most, most of the time. But you have to kind of figure out, like from the things we've talked about tonight, is what's what would if you if your goal is to why are you doing it? You got to ask yourself why am I doing this? What is my goal? Like for me, concentration isn't always my goal. There's other things to do. I'm actually more interested in insight, to tell you the truth. You know, but I need some concentration for that. So you have to kind of figure out what you're trying to do. You have to understand the path structure so that you're staying within the path, which is why it's easier to use the Lam Rim to guide you, you know, through that process. Venerable's concentration teachings are just wonderful. Yeah, we, we do a retreat here every week and every September, and we have all those teachings online, and they're really helpful. I, I think it's really helpful to educate yourself in this. I mean, they, they, you have to read a lot about this so you don't do it wrong. I taught myself to meditate when I was a teenager, and I did a lot of meditation without any instruction until I was till the year 2000. I had some instructions from books, and I got myself in some not so good places once in particular from doing meditation, where I was kind of like uh, I could make my mind really joyful, but I wasn't connecting with the world very much at that in that little time period. I remember I was going to therapy, and I left the session, and my therapist said to me connect to something. So I was driving home and I connected to the clouds, you know. I was just like able to make my mind joyful, so I thought I was fine. But I wasn't. I was really unhappy and I, because I could make my mind joyful in meditation, I was just like, I was so out, I was so messed up in a certain way. And I did that to myself, partly because I didn't have proper instruction. Luckily, I hit on some books early on that you kind of can't go wrong with a little bit. But you can, I've met people at the prison that don't know much about meditation. One guy from the Wicca group didn't realize he needed an object and was doing like blank-minded meditation, was starting to lose his memory. I gave him some advice and then I, because I went and checked with Venerable because I never saw this person again in my life. And luckily she said, yes, what you told him was right. You know, you need to have an object in meditation. So you need to train yourself. You need to read the instructions from the master's so that you know what you're doing. And then best is to have guidance from a teacher. But you can still learn a lot from the oral teachings and the written teachings. And I, I think that Venerable's teachings are excellent. And also she teaches a lot about the five hindrances, which are cover a lot of territory. 
you know, a lot of the things that get in the way, uh, you can kind of learn a lot about from those. And then um, that book by Jin Lamrimpa is skinny, <laughs> easy to read, and, and totally accurate. <laughs>